Just like that, the fear returns. Another strain, more concerns. Borders tighten, we get frightened. Anxiety spikes, the VIX gets heightened. Investors are running for those havens, trying to save what's worth saving. Bond yields dropping, yen is popping, small caps tanking, cryptos fading. Risk just flew out the door. That was quick. Are we in for more? Lockdowns, mask ups, six feet apart. Are we really headed back to start? Or is this just the way it'll be? Black swans appearing more frequently. We'll never know, we must confess. So trap that track on the Investopedia Express. All aboard, but hold on around the bend as it's getting a little bumpy on these tracks. And we're going to move kind of quick today because we have the Wall Street Trapper in the house. And that interview slaps, as my kids like to say. Global markets are coming into the week following the biggest one-day drop of 2021 last Friday as fears of the latest COVID variant swept through the markets. Omicron, as it has been named, was first identified in South Africa, but it's popping up all over the world, prompting travel restrictions, states of emergency, and renewed fears of lockdowns and economic restrictions. Scientists are still analyzing the new strain, but it has many more mutations than previous versions of the pathogen, and with much of the world still unvaccinated, health experts are worried that the virus could become more transmissible, possibly more dangerous, and possibly able to circumvent existing vaccines. Still, vaccine makers' stocks soared on Friday, the only green shoots in a sea of red, as investors dumped airlines, cruise lines, hotels, and energy stocks. Small cap stocks, which are highly susceptible to changes in the economic landscape, sank nearly 4%. Risk flew off the table, taking everything from crypto to crude oil with it as investors ducked for cover in U.S. government bonds and the Japanese yen. The volatility, or the fear index, spiked 54%. Yeah, that kind of scary. For all you market historians out there, it was the worst post-Thanksgiving performance for the S&P 500 since 1941 when President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed a bill to officially establish the fourth Thursday in November as a national holiday. Not to be so foul this close to Thanksgiving, but the timing couldn't have been worse for a lot of new money coming into the market. Markets have been dancing around all-time highs for weeks, and speculative bets on more upside are near record highs. Not to mention the fact that 2021 has been the flow show for U.S. equities, as investors poured nearly $900 billion into index ETFs and long-only funds. That's more than the combined total of the past 19 years. Speculative bets across asset classes are also nearing all-time highs, and leverage is creeping up along with it. Margin borrowing in October was up 42% from a year earlier to $935.9 billion, according to FINRA. Margin debt relative to the S&P's 500 market capitalization is also creeping higher. Now, we're not in nosebleed territory yet, but borrowings accounted for 2.4% of the benchmark's value at the end of October, up from 2.1% at the start of 2020. The 15-year average is closer to around 3%. This is happening right in the middle of a perfect storm of good, bad, and ugly dynamics swirling around the U.S. economy. The Great Ennio Morricone. First, the good. Weekly jobless claims hit a pandemic low last week of 199,000. That's the lowest weekly jobless claims number since 1969. Household spending remains pretty strong. It was up 1.3% in October. Inflation be damned. The spending continues. And personal income continues to grow. It was up 0.5% in October. Wage growth is happening, folks, but it may not be keeping up with inflation, but it eventually should. The S&P 500 is up 22% in 2021. Despite the recent shakiness, it's been another banner year for index investors. Now the bad. Inflation is at a 31-year high. You know it. 
You feel it every time you pull out your wallet. Gas prices are up 66% from 2020. The national average in the United States, $3.39 a gallon. That's the highest national gas rate average since 1994. Food prices up 5.3% from 2020. And consumer sentiment is at a 10-year low. And now the ugly. Those supply chain woes continue. Container shipping costs are 10 times pre-pandemic levels. There's also a near record amount of speculation across capital markets. We talked about that. Risk was in fashion all fall, but it may not be warm enough if a winter chill blows through the markets. Omicron presents an unknown risk to the stock market and the economy. The last time the stock market fell more than 2% was back in July when the Delta variant was identified. Will this strain be more impactful than Delta? Is this the first of a new wave of more resilient and aggressive strains? These are the black swans that are starting to become more frequent flyers of late. Lower-income households have not recovered from the economic impacts of the pandemic. The K-shaped recovery we've been talking about, that's left tens of millions of families behind, and many of those heads of households are working two to three jobs just to keep up with rising costs. That's where inflation hits the hardest. Let's get set up for the week ahead. The U.S. debt limit will come back into focus this week when Congress returns from Thanksgiving recess. Last month, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the nation could hit its debt limit by December 3rd. She gave lawmakers until December 15th to raise it before the Treasury can no longer pay its bills. But the negotiations over the debt limit are interwoven with the Biden administration's attempts to pass the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better plan. Senate Democrats are battling it out inside Capitol Hill, but we're not going to see a debt limit increase with Without movement on the new spending bill. That's pretty clear. The housing market will kick off this week's data releases with pending home sales on Monday and the Case-Shiller Home Price Index on Tuesday. U.S. home prices are at record highs and some cities like Phoenix, San Diego, and Denver have seen massive home price increases. We'll also get the November reading on consumer confidence. Consumer sentiment plunged to a 10-year low last month amid rising prices. Are we feeling any better about all that? Probably not. On Friday, we'll get the jobs report for November. All indications point to a strong month of hiring as weekly unemployment claims keep ticking lower. Forecasts are for around 525,000 jobs to have been added last month. OPEC Plus members are gathering this week, and the meeting comes at a sticky time for crude prices as those prices plunge 12% on Friday amid Omicron worries. The group is supposed to discuss plans to ramp up production to ease prices, but they aren't in any kind of hurry to do that. And it's a big week in the e-commerce zone. From Black Friday to Cyber Monday and What the Heck Tuesday to I Can't Stop Myself Wednesday, online spending is expected to be up 5 to 8% this holiday season. Americans are expected to spend up to one $1.3 trillion in the last few weeks of the year. Expectations are high, but are consumers tapped out? In case you hadn't noticed, there is an investing revolution going on right now. Some 20 million people started investing or trading for the first time in 2020, and this has spilled way beyond Wall Street and Silicon Valley. It's happening across communities of all colors and income levels, and it's opening pathways to building wealth for people whose access has been blocked for generations. One of the people kicking down those doors and spreading financial and investing literacy like wildfire is Leon Howard, known better as the Wall Street Trapper. He's become one of the leading voices and influencers of the new Wall Street, and he's doing it our way 
through education. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome the Wall Street Trapper to the Investopedia Express. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's so good to have you here. I've been in this business a long time and I've followed a lot of people, but I've never seen anyone break into the financial media consciousness like you have and like Rashad and Troy have over at EYL. You got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers. You have an online university. You're on the speaking circuit. Forgive me for being kind of crass here, but where'd you come from? Where did all this come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, just born and raised in New Orleans, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, just a lot of fight was in, installed in me at an early age, but I saw a lot of the same things that wealth deprived and environments that are suffocated through financial literacy, right? And so just for the longest, you know, I went to prison at 16 years old. And so it was in prison where I got introduced to investing. I got introduced to the Wall Street Journal. I got introduced to the Warren Buffets and the Peter Lynch's because someone told me that I was playing the wrong game. And at first, I didn't know what that mean. And I, the only way I knew how to get money and people around me knew how to get money was through the streets and resorting to violence because that's what we were programmed to do. And the more I looked at the investing community, I realized that, one, I'm going to just keep it 100 with you. It is 100 percent similar to the streets. It is the exact same rules. The only thing is it's a different product. And I was like, damn, like that. this is the same game. So once I identified the two parallels, I was like, oh, I can play this. So now I had to have an information breakdown. And I always say that prison was one of the most amazing places for me, not in the way that I had fun there, but it helped me transform. It helped me sit down and not worry about survival. And it helped me sit down and read, right? It helped me change the information that I had and it helped me to reprogram my mindset. So I studied Warren Buffett. I studied Peter Lynch, but I also studied people like Reginald Lewis. I also studied people like John Mott Drew. I also studied people like O.W. Gurley, who just had a financial mission for us as a people, for us as a culture who had been deprived of that. So when I came home from prison, I felt adequate, right? I felt like I got the confidence to play this game. People make millions and billions of dollars without risking their lives. I was like, okay, I don't want to risk my life no more. Like, I want to be a grandfather. I want to get older. Um, I want to be a millionaire. I want to build wealth. I, I don't want everybody in my family to have to see the same thing. So I started investing in the stock market and became financial literate more than anything. And once I've seen some success, there's more people that look like me, that most people that sound like me that doesn't have access to this, that doesn't even know this exists. So now let me bring it to them. And so once I changed my life and I was the epitome of if I could do it, you can do it. I took it as my mission to expose as many people as I can. And my mission statement is always helping the culture build wealth one share at a time, man. Well, you're doing that, and it's unbelievable how fast it has grown. Do you remember a particular book or something that you read that made that light switch go off immediately, and you're like, I want more of this? Was it something in particular that got to you? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be honest. It was Reginald Lewis's Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? So Reginald Lewis was the first black billionaire who built a billion-dollar business. He purchased a sewing business for 22 $22 million. He turned it into a $90 million business and he reserved 81% of the revenue from that. And then he started TLC holding what he bought uh, Beatrice International Foods. Within, in 1986, he had $1.2 billion in revenue. By 1996, he had $2.2 billion in revenue. And I was like, yo, I've never seen, like I, I saw Warren Buffett do it. I saw that. But again, being able to identify somebody that looks like you, like image is everything, right? Image and verbiage and everything. So once I was like, oh, oh so he, 
He playing a private equity game, but he's on the other side of Wall Street. This is interesting to me because now I see somebody that can do it. So I read his book. And once I read his book, it seemed like it was it was a lot of money. But I knew that if if one person can do it, everybody else could do it. And so once I read that and then I got into like the rich dad, poor dads. Um, but it was first me reading that Reginald Lewis book that really helped me just like, damn, like I can really do this if I put in the time. And one of the things I did love about him is it didn't happen overnight. And so that was another thing that helped me transform was me understanding that this process doesn't happen overnight. And so it was definitely that that helped me. Again, like I said, then in the rich dad, poor dad, I just started getting deeper into financial literacy because you can't be a great investor if you don't know how to use money in, in various different ways. So it was a combination of those two books for sure that really, really like changed my mindset. Yeah, and you play the long game too. You're not out there telling people to buy this coin, that coin, this stock or that stock to get rich. You're about the education. You're about the process. And you know, you've been doing this now for a little bit. It takes time, but time is also your best friend when it comes to investing, is it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so one of the things that happened in poverty-stricken environments is you don't think you have time because tomorrow is not promised. Tomorrow doesn't always mean bright. Right. So the idea is, oh, I got to get this now. I need to get this money now. I need to transfer my life now. But what we don't understand is a couple years of work, a couple years of sacrifice can change your life forever. Right. And I look at the stock market as a machine that like I, I always use on my Instagram. It's a machine that prints money and buy freedom. Right. And so the machine prints money every day. Right. And all you have to do, one of the hardest things in the world is do is build a multi-billion dollar business, build a multi-million dollar business. The easiest thing in the world to do is invest in one. <laughs> it's the easiest thing to do. Amen. Understand. How to- <laughs> Amen. Yeah, I was just saying, just understand how the business makes money, understanding who the management is in the business, understanding if the business has a true competitive edge. And if it does, this may be a good business that fits inside of my realm of understanding. If I can understand it, man, I'm going to put my money up and I'm going to let it print for me for the long run. And and that's always my goal. And and we get people to understand that and grasp that concept, man. It's the power because, again, time is on your side. Right. And compound interest is the is the first cousin to time. You know, (laughs) I call it the magic fairy dust that's sprinkled over the stock market. Right. That if you got time and you're disciplined and you manage your risk, that compound interest is magic. Yeah. It's the wealth builder that doesn't get the gratification. It does all the dirty work. Right. <laughs> Compound interest is the sixth man that is the Dennis Robin of investment. It does all the dirty work. It does all the dirty work, but it's going to bring championships home. Absolutely. Right. And that's how I feel. I look at businesses that have that a great compound annual growth rate. I'm looking at businesses that can do that over time. Um, if I'm looking at small cap businesses, can it grow at 25 percent a year for me, 20 percent a year for me? You know, those simple things, it may seem hard, but it's, it's not really the hardest part of the investing is taking your time to research businesses that fit who you are. It's the hardest part. I want to get into your process because it's so interesting. You're, it's not for you about fads. It's not about what everybody's talking about. You have a real process there. And that process starts with that education, that discovery. Take us a little bit into, into your research process. So look, I know you're super into a lot of the DeFi stuff going on. You're super into the fintech world, but you got your fingers in a bunch of different pies. Take us in to the trapper sort of research mindset when you're getting, you're digging deep on a sector or a company or an industry. One of the things I do love is as investors, one of the things I love about being a individual investor is we don't understand how much leverage we have. So it's kind of like 
we get to look at the market firsthand. We see what a growth is because we're in the stores, we're using the devices, you know, so we see it. So one of the things I do is I look for growth companies for sure. Now, when I first got in the game, when I first started investing, I wasn't really a growth investor. I was kind of looking for the staples, you know, the value businesses. And I love value, right? I love the Warren Buffett value investing way. But now the true key to wealth for me is finding great businesses that have a lot of growth that can grow over time. Right. And so one of the things I'm looking for is one. So I have these rules that I look for. It's called rules. R-U-L-E-S. Reason. What is the reason I'm looking at this company? The U stands for understanding. So do I truly understand every business model associated with this business? I need to understand that that way I'm not caught off guard with anything that happens. Right. And if I understand the business, I also understand the competitors and the risk involved. The long is for longevity. Can I see the business being here for the next 10 to 15 years? Because every great investor I've studied, the Peter Lynch's, the Warren Buffett's, the Monash Pabras, right? They always said that their investment did well after three to five years. So I'm always looking at that, right? And then there's the evening expand. Can I see the business expanding without selling off assets or taking on more debt than necessary? And then the S is simplicity. So those are the first five things I'm looking for in the beginning. And then I want to ask myself, like, does this business truly have that competitive advantage? And, and it can be anything from a switching mode, which means that for the, for the, for the people that maybe listen that don't understand it, a switching mode is like how hard, this is one of my favorite ones. How hard is it if a business gets its consumer in there? How hard is it or inconvenient it is for the consumer to leave that business? So you think about the apples, you think about Facebooks, even with cybersecurities are some of the things that I love. Like once they get you in the grass, it's hard for you to get out. Just do the inconvenience, right? So that's important to me. Also, does the business have pricing power? Can the business increase its price at least three to 5% a year? Great businesses can do that all the time. They can beat inflation and increase prices. So that's a good, those are just some of the, the small metrics that I look for. But then one of the things I truly do is I look for businesses I'll go look for the event. Every business has an event that it's been through, inversion, something that caused the business to pull back heavily. And I always look to see what happened, what did management do to fix the issue? I always look at that because that tells me a lot about the integrity and the problem solving of management. So those are just a few things I look for when looking at the business. Again, I take building wealth serious. It's not a gamble for me. So I'll research a business for you know, a month, two months at a time, I'll research a business to make sure I truly get everything about it. When you allocate, you got a pretty diverse portfolio. You got a lot of investments out there. Do you have a number in mind? Is this a 5% rule? Is this a 2% rule? Or are sometimes you're like, you know what? I'm going to push a few more chips in on this. I believe a little bit deeper into this one. Or are you kind of a risk spreader where you're making a bunch of bets and you're kind of monitoring those on your watch list at all times? Yeah, so I have like, so it depends on what I'm looking for. So my growth section of my portfolio is about, right now it's probably about 45% of my portfolio because again, I'm 39, I have a lot in front of me, right? So I'm heavy on the growth, but then I also take like Bitcoin. It Right now it's, it's about 5% of my portfolio, Right. And then I do have like another 10 percent, 15 percent of my portfolio that's allocated for cash flow. So I use either REITs or heavy dividend stocks. But right now I'm just reinvesting all of my dividends. 
because I don't need it as the cash flow right now. So I kind of balance out my portfolio based on what I want. Then I still have maybe like 10, 15% of my portfolio that I do just do options trading in. But I'm then with options trading, I'm only doing leap options. So I'm out nine months, a year, year and a half. You know, so I'm always, again, I'm long-term and fundamentally sound with everything that I'm doing. So I find that balance in everything that I do. And that just works for me because one of the important things we have to do as investors is always understand, I call this investor identity. We have to understand who we are as investors so the noise don't take us off the game plan. Trapper, you are 100% right. We call those the animal spirits. They will crawl into your mind and take you apart piece by piece and make you do things you don't want to do or make you think you want to do them. And then you have nothing but regret. I love the process. And folks, he's teaching this on his Wall Street Trapper University. You're doing it in classes. You're doing it on Instagram. You're doing it on YouTube. Everywhere I look, you're on the platforms there and people are following you. And you've really been a big part of creating this this revolution. But I also want to talk about your notion of building wealth. You called building wealth a revolutionary act. And it's not just about investing in stocks for you. This is about building generational wealth in black families. Talk about this in your standard operating procedure for families. This is so important to what you're doing. And so it's not even just black families. Of course, I'm a African-American man. So I'm always identify with my culture first and foremost. But I like to tell people all the time that classism is a thing. People look at racism as the elephant that's set in the room. But for me, classism is way heavier than racism because racism is low-level thinking. Classism is the saying that this economic or group of people with this stature doesn't perpetuate their wealth because they like they didn't give the information to this class of people. And so wealth doesn't care what you look like, nor does poor or poverty care what you look like. But so if you can get the information, you can make the transition. And so the reason why building wealth, this is something I live by, that building wealth is a revolutionary act simply because revolution is one thing. Revolution is throwing away an old system that doesn't identify or help you or benefit you. People who are of a lower economic class can truly say that a certain system has not benefited them, whether it be financially, whether it be economically. Whether it even be morally. So now these people, the only way they can equip themselves is to go out and get the information. I understand and we understand like truly that wealthy people don't outwork poor people. They don't outwork you. You can go in any poor, poverty-stricken neighborhood and see people working two and three jobs, right? So it's not that they're outworking them. It's just that they have more information. So if I don't have information, then I can only work with what I have. The thing of building wealth um, one shed at a time and building wealth being a revolutionary act is saying, okay, I have to go in and relearn the programming that was taught to me so I can be reprogrammed, so I can get rid of these old habits, so I can develop wealthy habits, wealthy mindset, wealthy financial habits, learning that having my money moving for me is better than just sitting my money in a savings account. Learning that I can, and this is a way unorthodox way of thinking. Like I can use the VOO as a savings account for me instead of getting 0.01% in a savings account. Well, trap, what happens if the market go down? Well, you're going to get 0.01% anyway. So at least if the market goes down, you're okay. And the market goes up. So last year you got 18% on your money. This year, right now you got 26% on your money. And that's used as a savings account. So it's read and learning different strategies on how we can use our money for us that helps us. And that's 
how building wealth is a skill set more than anything. It's a skill set. I love what you said, that the rich don't outwork the poor. They have the more access to more information and they got the head start because having little capital can get you going and a little capital becomes a little bit more capital over time. And then you start to put all those pieces together. That's how wealth is created, maintained, and then passed on over time. But you need the advantage and you need the information. One thing I also hear you say a lot of is, you got to learn what you don't know. You got to think, you got to look for teachers outside of your normal circle because you're missing out on a whole galaxy of information that could change the game for you. Oh, for sure. One of the things that I, without a doubt, will spend money on is getting room, getting in the rooms where I am not the smartest person. I love, so here's one of my sayings information is the fertilizer to your wealth. Information is the fertilizer to your wealth. Why? So I understood why Moonez Pabri and God's spirit pay a million dollars to go sit down with Warren Buffett. They were already multi-million. It was billionaires already. But here's the greatest investor of all time. If it's going to cost me a million dollars to sit down and talk to him, I'm going to pay that. Because it's a reason why he was at once time the richest man in the world. It's a reason why he's considered the greatest investor of all time. I don't care how wealthy I am. He has knowledge and information that I don't have. I'm 39 years old and I get upset that I read somewhere that Warren Buffett reads 400 pages a day. I got upset behind that because I'm like, how is he reading 400 pages a day? And I go to sleep at about 50. I start going to sleep like, Man, how is he doing this? So for me, it's understanding that I need to get in a room with people that have more information than me. If I can get in a room with people that have more information than me, instead of trying to prove to them what I know, I'm going there as a sponge because I can take that information, apply it, and then bring it back. And that is how we excel. Like the reason why, again, people of lower classes cannot excel is because of lack of information, lack of exposure to information. So if we get exposed to the information, here's a saying, like I got so many sayings, I say that. Information and education changes the conversation. Once you change the conversation, you change the compensation. Once you change the compensation, you can create a new realization. So if I get a different type of information, I can have a different conversation with no matter what color you are. I can stand in a room. I feel adequate enough of saying, yo, I can have a conversation with you about income statements, balance sheets, compound annual growth rate, discount cash flows, economic cycles, buying rates, and not feel inadequate. You know what I'm saying? And so now, because I feel like I can have this conversation with you, now what happens is we can swap information. And the information that we swap now equips me with the tools to go make some more money. And if I can go make some more money, I can change my reality. Biggest mistake, Trapper, you ever made as an investor, whether it was early in the game or later in the game, what's your biggest mistake? Investing without knowing the company. Biggest mistake was investing in forward based off of name rather than doing the research. Now, of course, this year Ford is going crazy this year, but we talk in 2014, 2015, investing in a company like Ford at the time, the balance sheet was horrible. Uh, they were going through a transition and I just did it based on the name. Like, okay, I'm in New Orleans. I see Mustangs. I see F-150s everywhere. And I didn't understand the idea of what it takes to make a great business. Again, so I lost heavy on it because it, it just traded sideways for years. It didn't do anything. That was the first time, but it wasn't the last time. And then I started identifying, like, yo, you can't just base in a company based off the name. 
Like you really have to look in that business and then being so naive that you go heavy on it based on the name. Right. <laughs> um, so that was kind of like my biggest mistake as an investor. Again, then I started reading, you know, understanding like how Warren Buffett, how Monet's Bride, how Peter Lynch, how these people truly invest, how serious they take research. And once I realized that the research was the great equalizer in investing, I won't even look at a company I won't pull it up into my brokerage account until I've done the research on it first. You're talking to a guy that bought Lehman Brothers in 2008 as it was down around 20 bucks a share saying, this is a 95-year-old bank. Nobody's letting this thing go out of business. Not only did I go, I went in heavy, heavy, thinking I could outsmart everybody because I knew nothing. And uh, that took some time to get the sting out of that one. What's next for the Trapper? You have the university. You have the big online presence. You got an investment firm basically running through the, you know, your own will and your own power. You're, you're running your own game. What, what can we expect next from you? I think I've been blessed with a great platform and a great voice. And it's more of me just getting better, mastering my craft more, being able to reach more people. I think that's what I want to do now. Um, I just want to put myself in situations where my voice is heard amongst more people. You know, you look at my Instagram, I probably have like 800,000 people. Um, and some people might be like, man, that's a lot of people. But for me, it's only a teardrop in the ocean. So for me, it's being able to get the message out to more people, bigger platforms, um, which, again, why I'm thankful for you, you know, me having this opportunity to speak on your platform, getting in the rooms with more great investors so I can get more knowledge. And the more knowledge I get, I can bring it back. So that's kind of what it is for me. It's not much as not so much business-wise, but how can I just be more and more impactful to a people that are thirsty for knowledge and information, a class of people more than just a race of people that are thirsty for this game and giving people the confidence to know that they can change their life through investing. Well, I will tell you right now, you are having that impact and you are having it in massive volumes, even though it may not seem like that much to you. And I can only see it growing from here because you're great at communicating. You're so passionate about this and you have discovered something and done it your way, which is something we love too. It's just, you've, you've found the way for it to work for you and it's working for a lot of people too. I know so many people are grateful for everything you've been teaching them and what you'll continue to teach them. Let's go out on this one, Trapper. We're a site built on investing terms. What's your favorite investing term? Is there one that just rings in your head that's just like, this is it. This is the flag I'm waving. Which one is, is the one that speaks to you? A moat. I love that. That term, it makes me just smile. Because if I, I understand it and I think about it in a simple way, if a company has a moat, it just takes for it'll take hell and high water for somebody to take it down. <laughs> so a moat, just moat that once I understood what that was like Warren Buffett just pounds that word into my head. And so that moat word is a word that just it, it, it what moat is like the first thing I look for when I have a moat. Right. So moat is definitely it for me. Definitely it for me. Yeah. Well, it's also Warren Buffett's favorite term. So good choice there. You're in good company. And I just love the fact that you're so passionate about the education, but also the message is, is you know, is exactly what we need right now. And, and it is 
really a joy to watch you blow up across all these platforms, but I know you're doing it for the love of the game and to really help people. That's where your motivation is. It has really been a pleasure talking to you. The Wall Street Trapper folks, find him on Instagram, find him on YouTube, find him on Twitter. He is everywhere, but listen to what he's saying because you are teaching some great stuff and really helping people. Thank you, brother. Thank you, bro. Uh, I appreciate you letting me come here for the people who want to look for me. I'm on Instagram, wall underscore street underscore trapper. Wall underscore street underscore trapper and on YouTube is Wall Street Trapper. So thank again, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for letting me come and bless your platform. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Maria in Phoenix, Arizona. What's up, Camelback? I love that town. Maria suggests investment risk this week, and what a perfect suggestion given the wave of uncertainty that just crashed over us. Investment risk is the possibility of losing money on an investment or business venture. Some more common and distinct financial risks include credit risk, liquidity risk, and operational risk. A fundamental idea in finance is the relationship between risk and return. The greater amount of risk an investor is willing to take, the greater the potential return. Investors expect to be compensated for taking on additional risk. For example, a U.S. Treasury bond is considered one of the safest investments on the planet when compared to a corporate bond, and it provides a lower rate of return. A corporation is much more likely to go bankrupt than the U.S. government. Because the default risk of investing in a corporate bond is higher, investors are offered a higher rate of return. For such a small four-letter word, risk is one of the most important and powerful words we have in investing. We have an entire section devoted to it on Investopedia when you're ready for the deep dive. Great suggestion, Maria. You'll be getting a pair of the Buttersoft Investopedia socks in the mail for those chilly winter nights in the desert under the Arizona stars. We're going to let Nassim Taleb take us out this week. Taleb is a former trader, a mathematician, a modern-day philosopher of sorts, and he helped popularize the term black swan. Here's Taleb speaking at a Fora TV event about black swans in 2008 and how they always seem obvious to us in the rearview mirror. So here we have black swans, events of low predictability, high consequence. But the most vicious part is the following one, is that before the fact, they're extremely predictable. But after the fact, you know what? We saw them coming. We saw them coming, if only we had lifted our heads. We're going to need to keep our heads up this week and expect the unexpected. Special thanks to the Wall Street Trapper for spending time with us and to all of you for tuning in. We'll talk again a little further on down the line. <laughs>